Our sermon this morning helps us in our waiting, our waiting. We usually don't like to wait. Begins early. Children, you come to your parents with something really important. And they say, just wait a minute. I'm busy. Or just wait a minute. I'm talking. And you have to learn to wait. Sitting in a waiting room that's running behind schedule can seem like such a waste of time. We don't like to wait. Well, there's good news. Biblically speaking, waiting involves more than just the passing of time. Biblical waiting actually can be active. It involves doing something. And while time does pass as we wait for God to do or reveal something, that time is often filled with some kind of spiritual exercise or purpose. In our story that we're considering here in Acts chapter 1, the disciples need to wait for this period of 10 days, or at least at the most 10 days. You remember our timeline, Acts 1 told us in verse 3 that Jesus had presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom. So we have this 40-day period, and now we know what's coming. From the Passover, 50 days later will be the celebration of Pentecost, So 40 days of the 50 have passed, and we're looking at this 10-day period of waiting. A 10-day gap before that 50th day, the celebration of Pentecost. So here we have in Acts chapter 1, kind of a, a lost paragraph. Oh, we know Acts 1, 8. That that kind of steals all the thunder from Acts chapter 1 in our minds. And then we get to chapter 2, Pentecost, the pouring out of the Spirit. But I think it will be helpful for us to focus on this 10-day gap between you will be witnesses and the Holy Spirit will be poured out. It's a period of waiting. And we know it is because in Acts chapter 1 and verse 4, we heard what Jesus said. Luke tells us that while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. And while our waiting won't be the same as their waiting for the pouring out of the Spirit and the beginning of their ministry, in our Christian lives, we often spend time waiting. We wait in a stage of life wondering what's next. We wait to try to figure out what does God want me to do? Some conflict has erupted in a relationship and we we don't know what resolution looks like. Others are waiting to figure out things like what kind of career do I pursue? What do I do with this relationship that the Lord has led me into? Oftentimes, there's seasons of waiting that are hard. A a young couple could wait for children, wondering what God's plan is, and and there's a desire, but there's there's a season of waiting. 
Other couples, God gives children. And then they're waiting, thinking, will this stage ever end with little ones? We know what it is to be in a season when we know something else is coming, and therefore that season becomes a season of waiting. Our text for today reveals that there should be a spiritual focus with intentional actions that define that period of waiting. So here's our theme for this morning. We must take steps of faith while waiting on God's plan. We must take steps of faith while waiting on God's plan. Now, in no way do I want to undermine passages in Scripture that speak of a quietness of heart while we wait. Because there are times where we want to take into our control the timeline and we want to check some boxes and and get some of the work done so that God can do his thing. And there are times when God wants us in, in total faith to step back and to just be still and see him work. But I'm just trying to define this waiting for us, even the stillness, to describe what faith could look like. We'll see it in this story in Acts 1, and then our task this morning is to apply what we see in their lives during a season of waiting to our lives as we wait, as we pray for God to save that loved one, and yet we're waiting to pray for God to meet a need, and yet we're waiting, to be busy about ministry and yet waiting for fruit. How do we wait by taking these steps of faith? As we look at these disciples, I want us to ask this question, what steps of faith does this text reveal for our season of waiting? And I think the first step comes to us as the narrative unfolds in verse 12, by saying, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Now, a Sabbath day's journey is kind of a Jewish code word. Because obviously, if you had a whole day to walk, you could cover a good number of miles. But in the oral tradition of the Jewish Pharisees, not in the actual law of Moses, there was a certain distance that you were allowed to walk on the Sabbath day before it became too much work on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees labored to kind of expand on God's rule about honoring the Sabbath and not doing work on that day by kind of detailing exactly what that would look like. And so they measured out how many steps could be exerted before you were actually working. And those steps, as we kind of do the math, comes to about three quarters of a mile. So if you've ever seen a picture of the modern-day city of Jerusalem, usually you see the, the shiny gold dome there on the mosque on the Temple Mount, maybe some of the old wall and the, the eastern gate, that view is from the Mount of Olives. And so you would just walk down the, the mountain into the valley and up to the walls of Jerusalem and enter the city, about three quarters of a mile. That's 
kind of descriptive of what the disciples did. They watched Jesus ascend into heaven, and then they returned to Jerusalem. But that return to Jerusalem comment is a reminder that this is exactly what Jesus had told them. He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. And this one who ordered that is the one that the disciples called in verse 6, the Lord. So this return to Jerusalem in verse 12, while it's a descriptive detail, it's a reminder that these men had followed Jesus of Nazareth, recognizing him as Lord. So when he said, go back and wait, the text reveals they went back and waited. We labor to teach our children this. The, the simplicity of obedience that doesn't always get to ask questions to make sure they understand everything. <clears throat> Instead, they just obey. Just obey. Maybe later there's time for explanations and questions and answers, but obedience comes first. And that's what we see here, a response to the lordship of Jesus who said, Go to Jerusalem, don't leave there, and wait for the coming Holy Spirit. The first step of faith that I think we can apply to our lives even today is this. Remember that Jesus is Lord. In your seasons of waiting, remember that Jesus is Lord. And if we're going to say that Jesus is Lord, then it's going to be seen in the way we respond to what Jesus has said. And I think there's two questions here. We could ask, number one, how do we respond to what Jesus said we should do? Because in the text, they knew they were supposed to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the Spirit, and they did so, demonstrating that they really believed Jesus could command these things. He was Lord. In our seasons of waiting, we demonstrate the lordship of Jesus by simply obeying what he says to do. You may not know God's will for the future. So ask instead of, what does God have for the future? Ask, what is clear from God's word that directs my life today? I know we wring our hands about the future, but we should actually busy our hands in the present. Do what God has said. Demonstrate that he is Lord, not only by saying you have faith that he'll guide you in the future, but that he is Lord and authority of your life in the present. So how do we respond to what he said we should do? But there's a second question. How do we respond to what he said he would do. Because not only does the text say that he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait, the waiting finds definition. Verse 5, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say, you will be witnesses. Remembering that Jesus is Lord makes us stop and remember what he said he would do. He would pour out his spirit, empowering us 
to be his witnesses. In other words, this responsibility to a witness is one of the ways we demonstrate that we're a follower of Jesus. It's how we demonstrate that we really believe he is Lord. Because we all can recognize being a gospel witness in any sphere to your loved ones who may know you well, to your neighbor who may know you somewhat, to someone in the workplace. Being a witness can be a challenge. It can present temptations to fear and to cowardice. And yet the scriptures are telling us, wait a minute, if, if Jesus is Lord, then you will remember his lordship by what he said he would do. He would pour out his spirit on you and empower you to be what you should be. Our failure to witness as salt and light is an assault on the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's basically a declaration that while I know what he did on the cross and I know he's seated at the right hand of the Father, he can't fulfill what he said he would do and empower me to be a witness. There's the danger in saying, oh, I was just afraid to say anything. It's, but wait a minute. Christ said he would do this. Do you trust him to be Lord and authority to send you out as a disciple-making disciple, as a witness. Jesus, as Lord, can command and tell us what we should do, and Jesus, as Lord, has done and will keep doing everything that he says he would do. So what are you waiting on? Maybe you're wanting to know what's next for you in your young adult years. Is it college? Is it a career? A degree? Maybe you're waiting on a relationship for one to begin or for clarity in the one you're in. Maybe you're asking, will the Lord ever give that kind of relationship in marriage? Should you change jobs? What ministry do I need to pursue with my giftings? How should I use some extra money that's come my way. When will this trying circumstance pass? In these kinds of seasons of waiting, we must fuel our faith by going back to the simple truth, Jesus is Lord. And when he chooses to reveal what the future holds... I'll be ready. I'll be trusting him as Lord. And should that kind of certainty always be out of my grasp, then I'll keep trusting him, believing that he is Lord. I'll obey his commands, what he's told me to do, and I'll trust his promises, what he said he would do. But this whole paragraph on waiting hinges on this fact that in Verse 6, they call him Lord, and by verse 12, they're just doing what he said to do. They didn't know how long they would wait. They had just heard in not many days. They didn't know what that was going to look like. They didn't know they were going to be 
flames of fire hovering over their heads. They didn't know they would speak in unknown languages. They didn't know that thousands would come to faith on that day in a show of God's Spirit's power to build his church. They didn't know that. They knew one thing. Stay in Jerusalem waiting. And that's what they did. Consider another step of faith while you wait. Number two, find the value of unity in the family of God. They returned to Jerusalem and began waiting. But verse 13 says, when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together. So they're staying there with one accord together. This speaks to a unity of purpose. We will all pursue the lordship of Christ in this season of waiting. To understand this unity, it helps us to ask who made up this crowd of what it says is about 120 people. We know at first from verse 13 that there's 11 of the 12 original apostles. Judas's account unfolds for us later. We know he's no longer in the scene. Now there's, there's these 11 remaining apostles, some of them common fishermen. One of them is the hated tax collector. There's a radical zealot among them trying to shave off the rough edges of his nationalism. There's a sweet-spirited guy, the one who we're told in whom was found no guile, but he's kind of offset by James and John, the sons of thunder, these boisterous kind of judgmental, outgoing kind of guys. Vastly different in just the 11 disciples or apostles, and yet in one accord, together, seeking the will of God while waiting. But the text goes on to say, not only is it these apostles, but also it says together with the women. Well, we're not told exactly who they are, except that we can go elsewhere in the gospel accounts and see multiple times where various women are listed as the traveling party of Jesus and the apostles. I want to lean on Luke's account. Since Acts is Luke's sequel to his first writing, hear what he said about some of the women in Luke chapter 8. Soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. So Luke's first record, Jesus advancing his kingdom. His second record, Jesus by his spirit through the church, advancing the kingdom. And the twelve were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for them out of their means. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the presence of various women, some of even these women that Luke mentioned, at both the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus. 
So it doesn't surprise us to know that some of the closest followers of Jesus were a group of women that ministered to Jesus and the disciples out of their own means and abilities. And now Luke is telling us not only were the disciples there, but there were these other female disciples, the women that were close to this group. We're told that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. We're told that Jesus' brothers were there. Now Mark chapter 6 gives us this record. When Jesus came to his hometown of Nazareth for his first pass-through of his own hometown, they said this, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us also? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Some of you know what it means to go to a Thanksgiving dinner with family and not be as welcomed as you might expect. You're the radical zealot. You're the one who won't accept the cultural's uh, the cultural waves sweeping across society. You're that Christian that kind of judges everybody and mean and hateful. At least that's the way they're labeling you. Your own family doesn't accept you. That's exactly the life Jesus lived. John 7 and verse 5 adds this commentary, for not even his brothers believed in him. But something changed. The power of the resurrection that we're waiting to see specifically in the outpouring of the Spirit had already begun accomplishing its work because his brothers who did not before believe and were skeptical of Jesus' ministry now are gathered in the upper room waiting for the promise of their brother, Jesus, who had said he would pour out the Holy Spirit. We can speculate of others. If you thought through the gospel narratives, who else were close friends and followers of Jesus? We might think of Cleopas and probably his wife, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Because they traveled to Emmaus, they broke bread with Jesus, realized it was him, and traveled all the way back to Jerusalem and told this incredible story of having encountered Jesus, only then to have Jesus appear again in the upper room. So maybe they weren't going back home until this was resolved. And they stayed too. We could think of Mary and Martha and their newly revived brother Lazarus. Maybe they too were among these 120 in the upper room. Was Nicodemus there? Had his faith finally taken root? Joseph of Arimathea? Both of these men on the Sanhedrin may be willing to forfeit their seat of authority, their position of wealth, to be a true follower of Jesus. Certainly that would be a period of waiting for them. What is life going to look like if I walk away from all the security of that elite position? We don't know who formed this crowd of 120 beyond the names that are given us. But the reality is, all that were there 
were characterized by a spirit of unity. They recognized the value of togetherness in pursuing the will of God. What does this mean for us? It means this, you should not be waiting alone. The Lord may call you to a season of waiting, but you should not be waiting alone. You're going to wrestle and wonder and hope and pray about issues that are important to you, and you're longing for answers, but you are wrong to do it in solitude. You are ripe for the devil's temptation that God is not good to you because of all these uncertainties or things that you're waiting for. And the text says, in, in the pinnacle of the crisis of trying to figure out what is my life going to be? I thought I was supposed to be a follower of Jesus, like the two on the road to Emmaus. We had hoped he was the one, and now we don't know. Or like the disciples, we're going back to fishing because we don't know if there's a future in following Jesus anymore. And Jesus appears, Acts chapter 1 in the first paragraph, reminds him of the kingdom and of resurrection, and then he's gone and he says, go to Jerusalem and just wait. And I'm sure they went to Jerusalem, the text tells us as much, and they're waiting, but there's a lot of questions here. And part of God's grace to them in the uncertainty, when the solution wasn't certainty, but waiting, part of God's grace was God's people in unity seeking the Lord so that the burden of my uncertainty is shared with someone else and they too can look to the Lord for help, for grace, for revelation of his will. Don't wait alone. God has designed the body to bear one another's burdens. And as we look at Acts chapter 1, we see the body wasn't designed for us, because it's defined by we're all the same age in the same stage of life. There could be comfort in that, but it could tend to the comfort of misery loves company instead of the history and the experience of God's faithfulness. So, so don't think that the body that God has designed for you needs to be all the same age, the same stage of life. Your struggle may be a bunch of young children, but the sole answer isn't find others with young children for hope. That's only part of God's solution. The body doesn't have to have the same background as you. And as our church has grown over the years, the backgrounds of people that gather to worship are becoming notably more different. Unbelief through the adult years, or belonging to other denominations and other churches, some true churches and some not, some healthy churches and some not. There's all kinds of backgrounds and preferences for how a church service could and should be done, and yet you gather here. Not demanding that all those things produce some kind of sameness, 
but that we find a unity in seeking and worshiping the Lord. So the body doesn't have to be the same age. It doesn't have to have the same background. It doesn't have to see things the same way you do. But you can still be challenged and encouraged and counseled in and through your season of waiting. My question would be, why haven't you told anybody of the burden on your heart in a season of waiting? There could be various answers, but I would say bring those answers to the scriptures and see if there isn't evidence that would say, that sounds like a burden that, yes, should be cast on the Lord, and that's your heart business to do, but it sounds like a burden that could be shared by others. So the first step of faith is to remember that Jesus is Lord. The second step of faith that can be taken while you wait is to find the value of unity in the family of God, in the body of Christ. And may I expand it just in that language? This local body may provide a great source of burden sharing, but there are believers beyond these walls that you know and you lean on. That's what we're talking about. These believers gathered didn't even have one local congregation yet. Technically, they would have represented multiple bodies or what we would think of as synagogues, but they're followers of Jesus. And they can say, here's my burden, here are my questions. Will you pray for me? This leads us to step number three. The specific benefit of praying with other Christians Step number three, while you wait, pray with other Christians. That's really the weight of the unity in the text. Verse 14, all these with one accord were doing what? What was the main emphasis of the unity? They were devoting themselves to prayer. Can I say you're in sin to not pray with other Christians? it'd be a hard case to make. But when I look at scripture and see this kind of weight put on a corporate prayer, I would say I would want to stay away from a prayer life that is only ever defined by the prayer closet, the singular conversation of me and God. I think maybe we should start thinking about broadening that prayer life to prayer that includes praying with others. If we're really going to recognize what prayer is, taking our burdens to the Lord or worshiping him, giving thanks to him, we should, we should be able to do that, as the Psalms would say, in the congregation, whether that's corporate worship or whether that's when we're with those who make up the congregation. Frankly, I think most of us do this pretty simply without even thinking about it. If you had somebody over for lunch today, you you probably wouldn't think twice about a prayer together of giving thanks for the meal. Well, if we can do that out of almost just routine, then surely in the bigger things of life, we could come along somebody and, and utter a sentence of prayer. 
in a season of loss or pain, you might not have a lot of words to say. You don't, you don't know how to comfort when you can barely fathom the hurt they're going through. But I think you could say from 2 Corinthians, God, you're the God of all comfort. Somehow minister to my friends here. Please, thank you, and amen. That doesn't take a spiritual giant, but it would reflect the idea that I'm going to devote myself to praying with others, rejoicing with them, weeping with them, going to God with them. And just remember, if you struggle to pray, uh, I think the simplicity of the acrostic, P-R-A-Y, is helpful. P, we praise God when we pray. And so I could imagine these disciples gathering for praise. Praise for the resurrection. They're still remembering, looking into that musty, empty tomb and seeing the the grave clothes laying there empty. When you read the gospel accounts, you read things like they saw that and then they remembered what Jesus had said. They just spent a couple of days in the depths of sorrow and despair because Jesus was dead and it took seeing the empty tomb to remember he said he would rise again. I'm sure they praised him for the resurrection, for understanding of the truth that they had so often missed along the way. Oh, fools and slow of heart to believe they heard from Jesus again and again. And now understanding was dawning on them and they praised God that this started to make sense. Perhaps they praised him for being invited to be citizens in that kingdom so that the height of citizenship wasn't defined by being a Jew or a Roman. Now it meant Jesus is Lord, not Caesar is Lord. R is for repent. And you can see Peter in this prayer meeting repenting of unbelief, repenting of fear and cowardice, repenting of betrayal, Others joining him, saying, we too repent because we forsook him and fled when the Garden of Gethsemane made Christianity a little less tenable. I don't know if I want to be a part of this crowd if they're getting hauled off to the courts. There was some repentance going on. Repenting as the disciples should have done because even on the way to Gethsemane, they're still bickering about who's the greatest in the kingdom of God. And suddenly it was dawning on them that the only greatness that needs to be discussed is the greatness of our King Jesus. We're to be servants in the kingdom. A, ask. Jesus told them to wait for the promised Holy Spirit. In John's gospel, he said, receive the Spirit when it's breathed out on you. They would be right to ask for the promised Holy Spirit. They would be right to ask for understanding. They would be right to ask for power. These are things Jesus had already talked about. They could be asking in Jesus' name and according to his will if they were asking for those things. And then why is yield? Yield to the coming spirit. They could have prayed that they would yield to the will of the Father, 
that they would yield to whatever it means to go to the ends of the earth. That's a, that's a new thought for them. These guys are born and raised in Galilee or Judea. They had never left the borders of their country. And now Jesus is saying something about to the ends of the earth. Are their families going with them? What does this mean? Well, without those answers, the responsibility was, back to our first point, remember he's Lord. And what he says goes. So their prayer may have been in the uncertainty of the upper room, yielding. Lord, we don't know what this is going to look like. We don't know what you mean by waiting for the Spirit and being your witnesses to the ends of the earth, but we're ready. We're ready. Who knows if we'll have a commissioning service for a couple in this church to to head out overseas as 28-year-olds with little kids or as 58-year-olds with life to invest for the kingdom. Are you yielded to whatever the ends of the earth means for you? That's what it means to devote ourselves to prayer with other Christians. And let me show you a subtle answer to prayer in the text. It's there in verse 15. When it says, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. And we hear what he says in the following verses. How is this an answer to prayer? Peter standing up among the brothers and speaking scripture truth to them. Well, Jesus had said in Luke chapter 22 in a moment of warning, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, that you would strengthen your brothers. Jesus had prayed for the strength of Peter. In Acts 1, we have the answer to that prayer Peter stands up and strengthens the brothers. And Peter will stand up and preach in Acts 2, that message at Pentecost. Those are answers to the prayer that Jesus prayed. And when he was praying it, he was praying as Jesus limited by the flesh, Jesus dependent on the Spirit, Jesus seeking the will of his Father. That's exactly how we pray. Jesus' prayer for Peter wasn't some supernatural prayer that only God could pray. It was the prayer of the God-man teaching us how to pray in the Spirit for what we know God wants to accomplish in his people. Prayer is integral to waiting. It's really part of each point on your outline. You could look at each point and think that that could be bathed in prayer. That, That could be in the context of prayer. The warning is you will perpetuate and compound your uncertainty by failing to pray. The waiting that they were asked to do, the hardship of waiting was offset by the privilege of praying. So don't let waiting be oppressive. War against the the oppressiveness of having to wait for the Lord by exercising faith in praying to him. 
our final step of faith while waiting. Seek to determine God's will. Seek to determine God's will. Now, I've put this in an active voice. You doing something to try to get to an understanding of God's will. I want that to reflect the text because oftentimes the will of God becomes very passive. We're waiting for him to reveal his will or make it known. And that is true. We'll see the verb they use in their prayer regarding God's will. But I want us to see faith as active. I'm engaged in this process of waiting. I can't know God's will or demand to know it, but I can be active in being ready to discern his will. So seek to determine God's will. The rest of our text, beginning at verse 16, when Peter stands up to speak, is the account of replacing Judas, who had killed himself after betraying Jesus. So now they need to fill this place of the 12th apostle. And they want to know God's will on that matter. But there are a couple principles in this discerning of God's will that I think apply to us today. Number one, know God's word. Not because God's word says, here's where you go to college, here's the degree you should study, here's the person to marry. You don't get those answers specifically, but you you will gain wisdom regarding what God wants by knowing his word. That's why he revealed it to us. So Peter stands up to address the crowd there regarding the filling of this void and wanting God's will for who it is, and he begins by citing scripture. And it's in a unique way. He says the scriptures had to be fulfilled. Why is he bringing up Psalm 69? that God would judge the wicked who oppose him and they would vacate their place and it would be desolate, speaking in part to the life of Judas. Why would he say in Psalm 109 that God would replace the one who fell away with someone else, speaking in part to the life of Judas? It's because it seems that God's plan had been thwarted. He chose 12 and one of them has fallen away. It's it's like a problem, right? There's this dilemma. What do we do now? That didn't work. But Peter is saying, wait a minute. As we're seeking God's will, let's remember what Scripture says. First and foremost, God's will is never thwarted. God knew exactly what was going to happen with Judas. We are still exactly in the place of God's will. He wants us learning to wait learning to trust, learning to discern what he wants in something as specific as, is it this man or this man? We're not talking, you know, between a wretch and a good guy. We're talking about two guys that, according to the description here, had been with Jesus since his baptism, all through his ministry, had witnessed his resurrection, and now we don't know which one is supposed to be the one. It's choosing the best among good things. And Peter's starting place is rest in the will of God by knowing his word. 
their understanding of what God was going to do in making his will known began with the question, not what is God going to do, but what has God already said? And I would submit to you that oftentimes when you're trying to discern what God's will is for all the practical things of life, big and small, we can be easily and rightfully distracted if we will ask instead, what has God already said? Because once I indulge in that study, there is going to be the peace that comes, the rest in, oh, I already know what God has said. I see what he's done before. I see what he's promised. And the uncertainty of what is God going to do just kind of loses its draw to us because we realize I don't need to know that. Just like a toddler being led out of the nursery to go to the car to go home to lunch doesn't need to know exactly where they're going. They're just taking their parent's hand and being led. It's the now that matters, that takes all of the the stress out of the then. So know God's word. Peter says, hey, at ease, everyone. We're not in some crisis or dilemma. God's will hasn't been thwarted. Remember, he said this was going to happen. He's got this under control. Know God's word. Number two, pray for direction. What is the prayer that they actually pray? Verse 24, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one. Okay, that's a pretty specific prayer between this guy or that guy. Lord, you know all this. We don't. That's the point. Show us. Show us. What language do we use when we speak of God's will? We, we, we hear things like, God opened a door or closed a door. That might sound strange to people who didn't grow up in church hearing about these mysterious doors opening and closing. They only know doors from Monsters, Inc., right? I think I woke up a few of the little ones. <laughs> so we, we say God opened or closed a door. Well, That's the language here. God, show us. No to this one, yes to that one. Lord, should I I take this job promotion? It's going to mean this, this, and this on the pros, this, this, and this on the cons. Lord, I don't know. But you know, so please show. There's this you know recognition of faith, and there's the, the neediness of would you show me? Pray for direction. Lean hard on verse 24, even though it's tucked away in a narrative account. Lord, you know. Lord, would you show? Pray for direction. And just as a side note, these disciples were concerned about filling this 12th spot. Well, this could be a whole other kind of side study. But understanding Jesus is building a kingdom with a new covenant and a new command, a better priesthood with a better sacrifice, all all of the newness. Jesus is basically saying, listen, the, the old people of God pictured in Israel in the Old Testament was built on the foundation of the 12 tribes. 
fulfilling that picture, the new people of God would be built on a foundation of the 12 apostles. It's this language of fulfillment. It's cementing in the minds of these men. The foundation is being laid in you, but you will be witnesses and you will advance and build the church. So there's there's a big picture involved in filling this 12th spot, and, and these men knew it. And that's why they're passionate about filling this need. But there was a need. They prayed for direction. And from that, we can learn a lesson. We have our needs. We have our uncertainties. Well, let's pray for direction and trust what God provides. That's really point number three. Surrender your control. They prayed, Lord, you know, show Verse 26, and they cast lots. And the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11. So let me briefly explain the casting of lots, and we'll be done. Casting of lots goes way back into the Old Testament. It's there repeatedly. You read through some of the books of the law, you'll see it. Uh, Different narrative accounts, you'll see it. They cast lots. Think of rolling dice or flipping a coin. The idea is what we call random or chance is is signifying that we don't have control. You throw a die and it bounces around and lands on a number, but you you couldn't really spin it the right way because it's going to bounce and jump into the air That randomness or chance is our recognition that's out of my control. Or you flip the coin at the Super Bowl there when our Chiefs captains were out there. And it's flying through the air and you don't know how it's going to flip and if the wind's going to slow it or speed it up and if it'll bounce when it hits the ground. There's randomness. There's chance there, as we call it. The casting of lots took that randomness that essentially meant it's out of my control And it put it into God's control. Not into fate or chance, but into the control of God. Now, we don't know exactly what it looked like, but we do have some precedent in the Old Testament of the use of stones. And stones could be put in a bag, and if you pulled out one colored stone, it could mean one thing. A different color could mean another thing. But the randomness of putting stones in a bag and reaching in randomly and pulling one out meant I didn't have any control over it, but I will trust that God did, that God in his control of all things controlled the hand that reached in and chose that stone. So casting of lots was all about control. Is it in our control or is it in God's control? And so lots were cast to determine the scapegoat. Among the multiple animals that were selected, one of them would be the scapegoat determined by Lot. Lots were cast to determine the tribal land inheritances. Here's the piece of land. Its boundaries are defined there in the books of the law, and they would cast lots, and the tribes would receive that piece. Then the next one would come up on the auctioning block, so to speak, and you you have the descriptions of its territory, and the lots were cast. When Jonah was running from God, a storm broke out, 
And even the pagans said, let's cast lots, and to whoever the lot falls, he's the one guilty of causing this storm. And the lot fell to Jonah. Lots were determined, would determine the jobs that the priest would receive when it was their rotation of service. There were 24 orders of the priesthood, and each would have their season at working the temple throughout the year. When they showed up, lots were cast to determine who did which of the many jobs so that nobody could say, oh, he got the better job because he's friends with the high priest. No, you got the job God wanted for you. And so we hear in the wisdom of Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And then later in Proverbs 18.18, the lot puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders. What if we said dishwasher duty today after Sunday lunch will be determined by drawing straws? I can tell you exactly how this would happen. Even though it would be completely random and straws would be broken and drawn, whoever drew the short straw in our house would boldly declare, that's not fair. (laughs) What do you mean it's not fair? It was completely random and you had the choice. See, Proverbs was saying the lot puts an end to quarrels. If the lot is saying it's out of our control, it's in God's control. So what does this mean for us when we're trying to determine, should I take a job? Should I move across the country? You know, whatever the waiting is. Well, we're trying to know what God's plan is, what he wants to do in our lives. So we should know what God has said, know his word. Then when it gets down to this, and then pray and ask God to show us, pray for direction. But remembering his lordship, And praying for direction only works if you surrender your control. If you're asking God to make his will known what he wants and you stack it up against what you want, this doesn't work. Lord, show me who I should marry, but I really want it to be this girl. You know, I think this is really working out. I think this is what... No, you'll never have confidence that it's the will of God if you offered your option and then asked God for his, and now you're trying to make something work. Your hands have to be off. This is what it means when Jesus taught us in the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, not my will, but yours be done. It's not a cliche that we utter at the end of a prayer to make sure it's going to work. It's a declaration that I can't have control in this, or I will always question if I did the will of God. I have to be ready to say, whatever God says, I'm going to do. Whether that means walking away from something I really loved or receiving permission to go forward with it. When we were wrestling on what to do about starting a church, there was an option of starting what became Grace Bible Church. And at the same time on the table was a conversation with another church that we were really interested in. Some great people tied to camp ministry. It seemed like a great fit. How can you know the will of God with any confidence when there's two good things on the table? And for us, it came down to this. I have to take all my control off of this. I have to back away with all of my desires and just say, whatever 
God says will do that. And on Sunday night, we decided, I think he wants us to stay here and start a church. And on Tuesday, the letter came in the mail inviting us to the other church. So you just trust God. We looked at the letter from the other church and said, they're a day late and a dollar short. Too bad for them. That's not the will of God. How could we know that with certainty? Why weren't we perplexed? Like, oh no, now what do we do? Because we had stepped away and said, God, you make it clear. You know, so show us. And he did. Then the letter comes just to confirm and almost a comedy of, of, of just how this life works for us in our uncertainty. We had no idea that letter was already in the mail. God did. And he gave us the direction on Sunday night. But you have to back off and say, whatever you want, Lord. And with that backing away of control, the quarrels end. The quarrel in your own mind ends about the will of God when you've taken off your control and surrendered it to the Lord. The hardest part of knowing what God wants may be backing away from what you want. I'm not saying God won't give you what you want. But you've got to submit your desires. You've got to let them burn up on the altar if they need to so that you can know with clarity what God wants. So lay your desires out there. Jesus did. And then surrender them. Surrender the control to the will of a good and loving father. His way is best. So while you wait... While you wait, while you wonder what God wants from you or for you next, remember that Jesus is Lord. Share your burden of waiting with others. Pray with others. And seek to discern God's will by knowing what he said, by praying for him to show you specifically, and by yielding so that whatever he says is 100% what you want to do. May God help us to take these steps of faith even as we wait for his good plan. And so, Heavenly Father, would you bring special hope by your word to those who are in seasons of waiting today? Some are not. Some can file this away for that season to come. But for others, there are are big question marks hanging out there, and they loom large, and they're important. We, We know they are. So would you encourage them by these, your disciples, who had to wait? And by seeing how they waited, may our faith be a little more active this week. And may our hope and your faithfulness be fueled. May our confidence in your word ready us for whatever the duration of waiting may be. And through it all, may we know you to be faithful and true. Our good shepherd, who having received all that you offer, we can truly say that we lack nothing. And so, 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, empower us as your witnesses. Empower us to serve mightily. Empower us to wait patiently. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.